Welcome to Dyslexics Wanted, a podcast celebrating the unique strengths and creativity so often the hallmark of people with dyslexia. We invite you to learn more at the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia's website, wicd.org. And there you'll find out the latest information about a film we're producing called Decoders, a cutting-edge documentary that objectively and fearlessly explores fundamental questions about how we learn. To support the making of this film, find out more at WICD.org. And now, Dyslexics Wanted. Today's guest is Thomas West, who for over 25 years has been a leading advocate for the importance of visual thinking, visual computer technologies, and the creative potential of individuals with dyslexia and other learning differences. He's written three books, the first, In the Mind's Eye, dealing mostly with the hidden talents of dyslexia. The second book, and a terrific title too, Thinking Like Einstein, is about visual thinkers learning to use the power of computer graphics. And this year, the new book, Seeing What Others Cannot See. In this one, he investigates how different kinds of brains and different ways of thinking can help to make discoveries in unexpected ways. Please welcome Thomas West to the program. Let's start off with a little bit about you as a youngster. There's a great story here that you've been sharing with people in your books and your lectures about your own issues concerning dyslexia. Uh, well, the truth is that mostly I never talked about myself. <laughs> in the early days when I got into the field, I was really uh, writing a book about really quoting a lot of stories about famous people, and, and I really wasn't part of it. It's only in the third book that I talk about myself. But basically, the, the story is that, that I, uh, I, I could hardly learn to read for the first three or four years of primary school and had lots of trouble with any kind of memory-based, number-based, memorizing texts. And, but then later on, when it got into high-level thinking, thinking sort of concepts and working your way through something logically or seeing relationships between things, I seemed to be able to do better than my classmates. Mm. Whereas when the early part of schooling, I was really doing more poorly than most of my classmates. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, a, that's a sort of a summary of, uh, I suppose, the whole life story is that, yeah. that uh, I found that I'm strong in putting together pieces from lots of different parts and putting them together, and that's why my three books sort of do that right. job. I, I know in previous discussions with my guests, we've talked about family and environment because it's so important when you're a kid in every aspect. But in terms of your learning issues, was your family uh, supportive, helpful? Uh, did they understand enough to try to get you the help you needed back then? Oh, yes. Yeah. See, that family's really important here. Uh, first of all, my parents met in art school in, uh, in, in Philadelphia and long ago. And and really, they were both high visual people, uh, extremely adept. They both won the top prizes uh, for their time, and uh, and afterwards, sure, afterwards. But and then they, they did paintings like French Impressionist paintings. So uh, they're very, very competent. And my school things really were like my father's, although he never really talked about it. And and in fact, he went to his dying day, and he didn't know any of these things, really. Uh, it's only after he died that I began to really understand mm. what was going on. But I, I'm certain that it, it's at least three generations. My father, myself, and my two sons have different kinds of dyslexia. But, but the, really, the most important point was that when I got into the field, I realized that almost everybody was 
the professionals were trying to fix reading problems. And I said, well, reading is a nice thing to, to be able to fix. But there are all these wonderful abilities that I could see around me all the time. Oh, um, my mother's family were had lots of engineers, so I'd have this these traits mm. of the artists and engineers, high visual people working in things that are very different, would seem, but mm. not actually so. And uh, and I I saw all the considerable advantages. I realized that that there were these wonderful abilities that were really sort of invisible to the people who are hyper-focused on reading problems. These, these are the high talents and, uh, uh, and that I and my brother sort of exhibited this in this visual world. Mm. But, but then I started getting into the, doing the research and, uh, and uh, <laughs> one wonderful to be in Washington where you have the Library of Medicine and the, one, and the mm. Library of Congress Mm. Where you have all kinds of obscure documents <laughs> and information about very famous people, then you can discover things that nobody else has written about. Allow me and a that, moment to just drop in the fact that you shared with me uh, some images, some of the beautiful artwork that both your mom and dad created. I, I just wanted to put a right. little plug in for them. My goodness. You, and it's interesting, too, how two people... Uh, meet and fall in love and become married, and they share such a passion for the same thing. They, they you know, really creative people. I mean, wow. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, when you grow up in such a family, you just sort of take these things for granted. Uh, but, but then afterwards, you realize and say, wow, it is remarkable. And also mm. the quality of their work. They were both got this top scholarship to to travel and study in France. And this was in the 1930s. <laughs> so it was really right. quite something. Let me, let me, um, so. let me ask you, uh, you mentioned something a few moments ago that I wanted to follow up on. You seem to have one of those tremendously exciting senses of curiosity about life in general. But is that something that you think a lot of dyslexics uh, do possess, and maybe they're stifled at times, but, I mean, curiosity to learn despite the disadvantage of dyslexia at, at an early stage? Common, if you will. Oh, yeah. Well, curiosity is really a key word <laughs> that I've been focusing on right just recently, working on this third book. Uh, and uh, because it's, you see it in the gifted literature, quote, gifted, <laughs> talented kids. Well, I think it's just, I don't know what it is, but it is, it's, it's certainly I, it's the people I write about, the dyslexics, and now I've written a bit, a little bit about Asperger's and autism. Don't, I don't pretend to know a lot about that. But the people I'm interested in, ones who are really uh, making discoveries, particularly new, unexpected discoveries, they, that is one of the most important factors. You see, they're endlessly curious about this and that and how does it work and uh, and following up on all kinds of information. And it's quite different from a scholar or somebody who has been trained to, to see things in a certain way. The people I'm writing about are curious and follow their own curiosity into patterns and connections that nobody else would normally look at. So it's terribly, terribly important. But, of course, it's a driving force. And that doesn't seem to go away, that, that, that you're endlessly interested in all kinds of 
subject matter. And, and of course, it becomes a problem because you, you say, focus on something long enough to get something done yeah, exactly. before you move on to the other. other. We're talking with Thomas West. And, Tom, if you could perhaps pull up an example or two from your latest book about individuals that you've been writing about who have this innate sense of curiosity and have, have shown the, the creative spark that makes it so wonderful to, to really talk about. Please, an example or two that you, you would like to share. Yeah, yeah this, uh, I've just finished working on the, uh, uh, the newest third book, uh, and the title is Seeing What Others Cannot See. And this was a really sort of an expansion. I had previously been interested primarily in the talents of dyslexics, and then and looking at 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 the computer graphics in the in a, the other two books. But the, the, I puzzled about what example I would start off this third book with, and I settled on James Lovelock, a British scientist, who's probably best known for the guy. What's the Gaia hypothesis? The idea that the whole Earth is, with all its microbes, is is generating the right temperatures <laughs> for our planet, for for life, including us. But this is a big idea. But the the story I begin with is when he was hired by NASA to help figure out how would you discover whether there was life on Ma- on Mars, the, on this distant planet, and they gathered together and they were all these various scientists and many of them biologists were thinking about how how to have rockets and landing craft and little cages and all kinds of things for things that are lived alive on Mars if there was anything there and and he challenged that he said you've got to think about this quite differently and and really the the, the head of this group of scientists was not very pleased with this fellow and he said uh, well then you you work out some other alternative and by friday <laughs> and he he thought about it and he had this epiphany and he realized that if you look at the gases on the planet if you have a special telescope to see what kinds of gases are on the planet if you look at the gases on the atmos- at the atmosphere you can see whether or not the kinds of gases on the atmosphere of Mars are the kinds that are consistent with life. Uh, if there, if there's living things, there's certain kinds of gases, mm. and if they're not mm-hmm. living things, there are another kind of gases. So you can just look with a telescope. And it happened that he was working with the famous astronomer Carl Sagan. And Carl Sagan says, I'm not sure about your ideas, James Lovelock, but he says, but there's a problem that we've had as astronomers for a very long time. We've known that the sun has been getting hotter and hotter for, for billions of years, yet the Earth has stayed roughly the same temperature. And he said, I think maybe you got the idea. It's, it's the life of the planet hmm. that is, making, is keeping the temperature, uh, the right temperature for living things. So that's a big discovery. <laughs> Indeed, and as, as you were and, saying this fascinating story, I was thinking about a term that is now exciting and in vogue, thinking out of the box. That's what people want you to do now. But, but that's what people like him and you and others who have come up through the, the last generation have had to do uh, on your own, and sometimes you were yelled at because you thought out of the box. Oh, well, no, no. What's worse is that you're, 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 you're doing something 
your way of thinking and way of is is really not what the teacher wants. <laughs> right. I always say lately that that these this is, this kind of thinking is not of interest to most educators and school psychologists, but it's really very interesting to Nobel Prize winners and high level thinkers. <laughs> and you see this because of the places that I've been invited to give talks. It's just quite unbelievable. Uh, but out of the box thinking, I have just there's a wonderful I think I quote from Jack Horner, the famous dinosaur researcher who's quite dyslexic. I know him pretty well. And he, he says, as, as these dyslexics, he says, don't have any trouble thinking out of the outside of the box because they have never been in the box. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a great quote. <laughs> Very good quote. Very good and quote. it really does. It, it sort of sums it all up because if you go through a conventional educational program, uh, you're you're going to constantly be jumping barriers and doing things the teacher don't want that do not mm. want you to do. And even at the PhD level, they'll say, "Oh, you've got to focus on some very little thing, focus only on that, and nothing else." And, and and of course, everything I've done is the opposite. In your second book, which is again called Thinking Like Einstein, you relate a lot of information about computers and graphics and so forth that have really made life certainly a lot easier for most people, more interesting for most people, but uh, for those with dyslexia. Tell us a little bit about this advancement in the work that you did in Thinking Like Einstein. Yes. uh, Well, Thinking Like Einstein is really thinking in pictures, like he did. That's the major reason for that title. Um, but it was really a collection of articles I had been asked to write for an in-house publication of the International Computer Graphics Society. And I first looked at this years ago. I'd been to a small conference in Washington for business for computers. And I off in the corner, there was a little theater where they were showing the computer graphics. And I instantly said, this is something that's really important because it was so primitive before. Now it I mean, now, of course, <laughs> very sophisticated. But this was back in the 80s when it was really quite new in, to have a, a, a powerful enough computer to do images. So I started getting in contact with the computer graphics people, and I thought, this is just perfect for the dis- visual thinking dyslexics, <laughs> is, is uh, this new series of technologies. You have to have a very powerful machine to to do high-level computer graphics. And I, I was just sort of embraced by this community, and they said, oh, write for us, because uh, this is something. And one, one of the people in the field said that probably half of everybody in the computer graphics field is dyslexic. And it's really just that high-level visual thinking ability that we're after. But then she worked on the film Titanic, for example, mm-hmm. at a high level. <laughs> she was one of the main organizers of the computer graphics for that. And she said she assembled her best uh, animators to do this very difficult job of making believable animations in the middle of this very famous film, Titanic. And it dawned on her one day that everybody in her, <laughs> her elite group was dyslexic. <laughs> And and she also pointed out to me, she said, they didn't have to take any courses or listen to any rec- lectures or or read any books. They, it was an oral culture. They 
had to figure mm-hmm. out this because they were mm-hmm. at the leading edge. They had to figure it out for themselves, and then talk, tell each other. Or, but it was you, the, the the problems that dyslexics have with the reading and the and the lecture notes were not there at all, and the advantages of the high level visualization were there. And I have a question then about reading because. As an avid reader uh, and not somebody who listens to books on tape or audio recordings, uh, I'm wondering how that has changed life for dyslexics. In other words, the idea that you you can listen to the words and uh, and enjoy, uh, let's say, a novel perhaps with much more ease. Talk a little bit about that, if you will. Yeah, well, <clears throat> the first case is that now, especially in 2017, <laughs> it's the the machines that do reading for you are so so frequent. Even if you're using a text, you can just easily get it, you know, read to you. It's very common. But the, the uh, they're different dyslexics. They're they're those who really have to have recorded books or something like that, and uh, uh, that's terribly terribly important. For myself, I, I I read, but I read very very slowly. But I think I read maybe more deeply than others, <laughs> and I have to be very mm-hmm. careful about what, what I read and not commit myself to being reading more than I can uh, really uh, uh, afford in terms mm-hmm. of time. And uh, also, it's, it's just uh, one of the problems is not just the, the, the making out the letters, but if you have that kind of mind where you're making connections, uh, you have, it's like an your mind will go zinging off into all kinds of connections. <laughs> and you say, no, no, come back and read, <laughs> reread this paragraph and can pay attention to what's being said here. <laughs> right. So that's all, it's, it's a very complicated thing. But uh, yeah. it, it, if you have these many associations, it's also a problem and slows you down. Yet, at the end of the process, you've, you've sort of internalized basic information and some of and you can you you hold on to the concepts, although you may not be able to repeat the, the exact words. See, many people just quote the text mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. memorize the text. Well, that never happens with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's but, all right. But but the but the but the uh, substance is something that I will remember probably forever. Right. Uh, the the and, the important stuff. I can't remember lyrics to songs to save my life, but. I, I certainly can remember the melodies, and I know the names of the songs. I just can't remember the lyrics, but that's me. I wanted to ask you, since your books have been translated into so many languages, and you've traveled around the globe and have given lectures on this subject, just to comment on the fact that there is a universality to to this issue of how our brains develop. It's not exclusive to the Western culture. It's uh, something that oh, is, is, is international, and we're all under the same umbrella, I guess. Well, to underscore that is that the, uh, that I've been to 19 countries, but it's, a lot of them have been Asian countries as well as European. And the, as far as the translations are concerned, really there are only three, but there are all Asian languages, Japanese, Chinese, and Korean. And I just thought that is the most amazing thing in the world and that uh, I think the uh, so many of the people... Uh, in the European languages, they seem to be able to do English. Well, at least the higher-level folks do. 
that, that's interesting because but, one assumes that uh, because there are so many math and science uh, prodigies coming from the Asian countries over here that uh, they'd be less inclined to be interested, but they certainly seem interested in this topic. Yeah, it is it's a puzzle, and I still don't quite... I'm actually on the wall. I have posted a, a, a poster of Thomas G. West giving a talk at a certain time. <laughs> this is from Taiwan. Everything else is in Chinese. <laughs> Chinese <laughs> characters in Taiwan. Uh, but it really is... Uh, it, and then I gave some talks in Hong Kong, but the probably one of the most fascinating things in this connection was very recently, I was invited to go to Singapore for a week to give five talks to kick off their major effort in Singapore, you know, the tiny Asian country, uh, to, uh, to take advantage of the talents of dyslexic children and adults. And Singapore is uh, really a small <clears throat> island nation with uh, four cultures. You have the Chinese, the Malays, uh, the Indians, and the Europeans all working together at a very high level. The Singapore is technologically and commercially has been ahead of many people, many parts of the world for a long, long time. But uh, the, the fact that they were really focusing on uh, dyslexia as a kind of economic competitive advantage, and uh, and I was thrilled and honored to be invited to be part of that. Mm. In closing here, I really want to remark on your sense of enthusiasm over the telephone. You sound exceedingly happy to be doing the work you're doing. And if you could give a sense to the audience listening to this podcast, a sense of where we stand and the precipice we're on, I say we, including any, everyone, in terms of understanding not only dyslexia, but accepting people and promoting the fact that people can develop this beautiful sense of creativity and really save the planet in some cases. How, how excited are you about where we are now as opposed to certainly years ago? Well, the way I see it is that most of the changes in the technological world are to the advantage of the dyslexics and to the disadvantage of the people who succeeded in the old world. Rather, there's three steps. If you go way back in the history of humanity, the dyslexic traits, the sort of recognizing patterns in nature and that kind of thing, in basic inventiveness, contributed to human survival. There are Harvard neurologists who talk about this. And then you have a period of time when reading and writing is the most important way to do any kind of job, to be trained for any kind of job. Well, I think that second stage we're at the end of, and the third stage is where you use high-level computer graphics to, to uh, sort of do complicated scientific visualization of very complex patterns, and, and whether it's the financial markets or in biology or astronomy or mathematics or finance, uh, that, that high-level information handling is visual using visual computers. And guess who's really good at that? <laughs> I think I know. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. it's really, and, and it's, for me personally, I was trying to understand the, these things for myself and my family, my, uh, but, but I was just thrilled and a bit puzzled that this, there were so many people in the, in the world that were interested in this same 
kind of themes. One, one final example, I met a family in Britain where they have lots of dyslexics, lots of, lots of visual occupations, and on the wall of the dining room, there are four Nobel Prize medals in this family. Four. <laughs> well. Two from the wife's side and two from the husband's side. And the, the family is high visual, but they have, they mm. have lots of dyslexics. Well, you have so done a really consistent. You've done a great job chronicling the work in three books now: "In the Mind's Eye," "Thinking Like Einstein," and the latest, "Seeing What Others Cannot See." And I'll mention that there's also a website that people can follow up on called SeeingWhatOthersCannotSee.blogspot.com. What a fun guest you are! You're you're just a just an engaging chap and a lot of fun to speak speak to, and well, I really I appreciate it. Enjoyed talking to you. You're doing a great thing. Well, we want to do as much as we can to bring the attention to this issue and to celebrate. I think that's the key word: celebrate those uh, who are dyslexic who are doing so many great things. Thomas, thank you so much. God bless. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Dyslexics Wanted. Feel free to contact us here at our website, wicd.org. And there you'll learn more about how you can support the documentary film Decoders, which is currently in production. We welcome guest or topic suggestions for this podcast. Dyslexics Wanted is available on all major platforms, including Apple, and is a production of the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia. I'm Jordan Rich, wishing you a great day.